theists and atheists is reaching a fever pitch. Some seek to find common understanding and agreement. This is a place where we begin with differences and end with similarities. This is Apologia. Hello and welcome to Apologia. My name is Zachary Moore and I'll be moderating and participating in the discussion today. As always, Apologia is a group of theists and atheists who are here for a friendly roundtable discussion about our different perspectives and where we can find agreement. If you have feedback for the discussion, you can give it at the website for this podcast, which is hosted at drzach.net, D-R-Z-A-C-H.net. You can also continue the discussion with the rest of us here if you visit the Apologia blog, which can be found at apologia-podcast.blogspot.com, where you can have the opportunity to engage with us on an individual basis. Today, we're going to be discussing the ethics of food, and here to participate are Kevin Harris, who is the co-host of the Reasonable Faith podcast with Dr. William Lane Craig and a noted Christian apologist in his own right. Hey, Kevin, how are you? Hey, good to be here. We also have Dan Sawyer, the author of Sculpting God, among other books, which is currently being podcast from jdsawyer.net and the co-host of the Polyschismatic Reprobates Hour. Hey, Dan. Howdy. And joining us as our uh, featured vegan is uh, Richard Spencer, who most of you probably know as the former host of the Faith and Freethought podcast, and who is, of course, a self-proclaimed naturalist, vegan, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu master. Hey, Richard. Uh, hey, I would. Uh, I'll take the first two, not necessarily <laughs> master, just well, practitioner. Practitioner. Okay. Well, gentlemen, welcome yeah. to the discussion. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So, uh, like I said, today we're going to be talking about the ethics of food. And this was actually um, a topic that was sparked by uh, one of our listeners who um, was curious about an exchange that took place between Richard Dawkins and Peter Singer, in which uh, Peter Singer, as uh, some of you may know, is a a philosopher who um, wrote the, the seminal work Animal Liberation and uh, is basically is the, the, the prime philosopher behind the, the entire animal um, rights movement. And uh, he had a discussion with, it was actually a question and answer session with Richard Dawkins, in which he asked uh, Richard Dawkins if uh, there was, if he, if he thought that there was any morally defensible um, way to justify eating meat. And, and Dawkins actually said that, um, well, he really couldn't come up with anything substantial, and he admitted that um, it, there, was, there was a definite possibility that uh, in 200 years' time, uh, people would be regarding eating meat the same way that we regard now um, the practice of slavery. And uh, so that's, that's an interesting subject that, you know, uh, each of us has, uh, has our own sort of position, our own sort of justification on that. And uh, is that or is that not informed by our worldviews? Does, does an atheist, uh, would an atheist and a naturalist come to a different uh, conclusion than a Christian per se or, uh, or any other sort of religious background? So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. But to start off, I, I just thought I'd like to give... Uh, Richard Spencer, uh, a chance to talk a little bit about himself and his own veganism and sort of the reasons and uh, the justifications for why he's come to that position. All right, sure. Um, Well, I'll start off by saying I have not eaten meat in uh, almost 10 years. Mm, Wow. When I I, I stopped eating meat, and initially with vegan, I was was considerably younger. Mm -hmm. I was about 17. And um, at the time, I just got a hold of a PETA pamphlet. Um, a lot of people that I knew that were involved in the um, music scene I was interested in at that time were vegan or vegetarian. So I really sort of went vegan, vegetarian at the time um, for reasons that aren't the ones that I currently hold. Um, and I realized that it was a lot of, uh, of an emotional reaction to the PETA pamphlets that I was reading and, and that sort of literature. Um, as far as why I'm vegan, uh, vegan now, it's uh, really a combination of reasons, uh, the, the most obvious being that I don't believe we have uh, any sufficient moral justification for using animals uh, as food rather directly through meat or indirectly uh, with their milk and eggs and other byproducts. 
Um, also, then there are the uh, the less obvious reasons that uh, a vegan diet is, so far as I can tell, uh, a healthier choice for you, and it's also uh, better for the environment overall. So I think a combination uh, of these concerns, um, they lead me to lead a vegan lifestyle, and it's one that I find very rewarding. Hmm. And would you consider yourself uh, then in alignment with uh, Peter Singer's philosophies and positions? Um, for the most part, I haven't read anything of his that I, I vehemently disagree with. Um, and But at the same time, his works weren't the ones that initially got me started, although I guess probably the ones that I was reading initially were started by, by him, because as you say, he is, uh, many people regard him as the... Uh, most influential living philosopher um, of any sort just because uh, the views that he expressed in Animal Liberation and some of his other works were taken up so strongly by, uh, by certain followers uh, like PETA and other extremists like that. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, for the most part, if you understand Peter Singer's views and uh, the arguments he makes, um, in large part, you'll understand where I'm coming from. And um, just just to provide sort of like a, a foundation, I guess, for the for the rest of this discussion, could you describe um, how you determine what is morally right and what is morally wrong to eat? What is the what's the criteria that you use? And, and I'll, I'll I'll pose this question to uh, to everybody else here also after you're done. All right, sure. Um, well, uh, what in terms of what's morally right and what's morally wrong, I. Like and, and being a vegan, I think uh, the the term veganism is sort of stigmatized sometimes is by, by extremism and just it's really sort of like a black and white position. You know, if it has animal products in it, I don't eat it. If it doesn't, it's fair game. And that's not really. Uh, I mean, as a vegan, um, I'm not going to eat anything with with animal products in it. But as far as what I'm going to try to defend philosophically, it's a little less strict than that. Uh, what I would say is that I'm, it's not immoral for all people in all places at all times to eat meat. What I would say is that when we have the choice, we should choose the food option that least contributes to the suffering of sentient beings, whatever that may be. And especially for me, in the prevailing number of cases, that uh, food option is the vegan one. Hmm. So uh, the criteria that I use is choosing the food option that least contributes to the suffering of sentient beings. I see. So, Kevin, um, you grew up in uh, in East Texas, and uh, I would imagine veganism is um, a very rare phenomenon there. Um, you're not a vegan, I take it. No, no. Okay. So, what do you what do you think about the, this question about what is morally right and wrong to eat? What's your take on that? It's interesting. It's interesting that uh, it seems to be kind of a a newer phenomenon, um, and the, the the main moral consideration that I would uh, take keep in mind is that you know what is best for you, and um, if in fact uh, a vegetarian diet uh, is is really better for the planet, better for all people, then that is certainly something that uh, that we ought to pursue. Um, and so I've you know I've seen research both ways. I'm sure Richard can 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 spell out a whole lot. Um, you know, as well. Uh, it, it, I also, you know, from a we could get into uh, the biblical commentary on it. Uh, that uh, you know, you can you can eat whatever you want, uh, eat whatever set before you. Just uh, you know, in, in uh, just in thanksgiving to God. And uh, Romans fourteen, Paul said, "You vegetarians don't nag the meat eaters, and you meat eaters don't nag the vegetarians." Hmm. Uh, that's that's my paraphrase, but that's. You know, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, just because it it keeps other people off your back when it comes to disputable matters. Um, have your own conviction about it, and have good reason for and good principles for why you make the decision that you do. But you certainly don't want to influence somebody negatively who is in your sphere of influence, who is in your direct uh, influential power or sphere of of influence. Um, you know, and so on. And so it gives a principle there of uh, having your own conviction about um, what you eat, what you drink, and, um, and, and, and what bands you listen to and stuff like that. So, um, uh, but I would also uh, agree with Richard that, uh, 
we ought to keep the heat on any corporations, uh, and we hear about them all the time. Some are exaggerated. Some are dead on. Um, keep the heat on uh, people who really uh, participate in uh, corporations who, who practice cruelty, who have cruel practices as far as uh, harvesting or processing um, uh, the animals uh, for food. Uh, we hear these horror stories. We hear horror stories about uh, uh, animal ex- experimentation um, and so on. And, uh, you know, even the Proverbs says that uh, we are to be kind to animals. A righteous man cares for the needs of his animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. Proverbs 12. And so cruelty, uh, we're not to, you're not to be cruel to animals uh, from a uh, biblical standpoint um, and, uh, and so on. Where it comes in, where this discussion would probably go, is that a Judeo-Christian view, a biblical worldview, is that humans are of more value than animals. Um, even though animals have great value, they are not on par with, with human beings as far as their, their value and, um, and so on. And this just flies in the face of a lot of modern sensibilities who, uh, who will accuse you of speciesism mm-hmm. if you say something like that. But um, that's um, kind of my, my, my first direction that I would go with that. Interesting. Now, Dan, um, I've eaten meat with you, so I know that you eat meat. Yes. Um, so what's your, what's your take on, um, on, on the line between morally right and morally wrong types of food? Um, well, the, uh, really the first and only concern I have is a, after I know I'm not going to starve. That's my first moral concern. If I don't have to worry about starving, um, then my secondary moral concern is that the animal products that I use are slaughtered humanely which is unfortunately not something that happens dependably in the factory farm system at the moment. Some factory farms are better than others. When I'm really hard up for cash or when I'm feeling particularly adamant against the factory farm system, I'll go out and slaughter my own meat on the hoof because then I know it's been humanely prepared and dressed. So uh, very much of a a do-it-yourself approach. Oh, yeah. Well, I've... And granted, I don't pretend that this position is morally defensible, but I've got an emotional thing about people being distanced from the food they eat, whether it's plants or animals or whatnot. Um, As many things as I like about city life and as healthy for the human race as I think urbanization has been in many areas, one one way that it's not healthy is it has removed us from the uh, from the fact from the realities that uh, from the basic realities of life that is that every living thing except for photosynthetic plants lives by virtue of cannibalizing another living thing and that's an emotional reality most people never think about because they don't have to deal with um, growing slaughtering picking preparing their own food from scratch you know let me weigh in let me weigh in just real quick that uh, um where I grew up, uh, speaking of East Texas, where I grew up in my town, there was a packing plant. Several, several of my friends would work there in the uh, in the summertime, and they would, uh, uh, you know, in fact, there's an uh, animal being slaughtered in the background right now. If you're hearing, <laughs> it's my ten year old son. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, uh, they would not let you go through the the slaughter process for. For more than two days, you you could be in there for two days with the air gun, uh, which would shoot a blast of air and instantly kill that cow um, uh, as they came through. And the industry came up, and this is like 60s, 70s, you know, with this deal that uh, you can't do put any of your employees in that position for, for, for more than a couple of days before you give them time away from it because they don't want to harden them. And, I, and I said, I, I've always thought, what? I mean, these are some tough old boys, you know, that are in there. And so I've always thought about that, uh, thinking about how would that really harden you to life? Well, uh, oh, yes. perhaps, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I would hate to see an animal in pain. No, no, one, no one wants to see that. Um, and if you, if you see them taken out, you want to see them taken out instantaneously, you know, uh, but um, um, certainly you would be, uh, you know, so many serial killers start out torturing animals. Torturing you know? animals, yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, there 
I don't want to get into that because that that there could be factors uh, prior even to that, but it certainly does exacerbate it. And so uh, I think we're all in agreement on uh, regulation, uh, on uh, how cruel some of these things can be, and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, this the the issue that that Dan brought up, I think, is kind of interesting. The idea that um, it, it's almost more moral to kill the animal yourself than to have it done. In, in sort of a removed setting where you're not you're not really a party to the reality of, of death and slaughter and butchering and all that. Now I'm interested in Richard's take on this. Do you think that there is any moral difference between an animal that is killed? Um, let, let's say you do something like what Dan does. You go out to the field and you, you get the animal on the hoof and you, you slaughter it yourself, butcher it yourself, do the whole process. you're, you're, you're personally a part of it. Is that more? Uh, would you consider that, and do you think other vegans would consider that a more moral approach than, I guess, factory-killed meat? Uh, I mean, I would say that it is a more moral approach for, for a few reasons, but I still wouldn't say that that is morally acceptable. I think it's uh, the fact that you are uh, preventing yourself from becoming so removed from it that like people... You know, the problem is obvious where we just have the meat on our plate and we don't think about the process that that meat went through to get there. And uh, we also don't pay attention to the process of the factory farming that we're talking about. Um, so, so obviously going out and killing uh, your own food uh, does uh, eliminate certain of those issues, especially if you ensure uh, positively that uh, the animal is slaughtered in a humane way. Um, so as long as you can eliminate all of the suffering in that fashion, um, the issue is going to then boil down to uh, the one of, you know, are we justified in taking the animal's life? Can we kill the animal just because we want to eat it, even if there's no pain involved? And um, even on, on that question, um, I'm going to have to say no, uh, depending on, on the animal, like especially for something like, like a cow, I'll say the answer is no. Hmm. This is where it gets interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Dan. Um, I, I, not not to take away from 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 the empathy argument that you're advancing, Richard, because I think it's a very important part of the moral approach to food. But I don't think it can be the whole thing, justifiably. There's a few reasons for this. One is that, um, that all higher animals, uh, i.e. The highest of the high mammals, those with language, more than rudimentary learning abilities, um, sophisticated uh, intra- and interspecies communication systems, all of them are omnivorous. It requires the proteins that you find in in an animal-based diet to develop that kind of a brain. Um, now, that doesn't have to mean you're eating the flesh of the animal. You could be eating the eggs or the milk, but particularly the first few years of life, you have to have those kinds of proteins. Now, as biotech and um, sophisticated crop engineering has advanced, you can get much more of those proteins from soy products and from very soon factory-grown fungal products than you could 25, 50 years ago. But that's the reality only in the very wealthiest parts of the West. Outside of the wealthiest parts of the West, there are very few, pe- very few places on the planet. Um, some of them are in India. Some of them are um, in West Africa and a couple places in the Pacific Islands where there is enough natural abundance of complete proteins if you put different t- sorts of food together to be able to sustain particularly a growing child on a vegan diet. Um, and that's... That's where evolution has brought us, and I don't see a way around that. And when when forced to choose between is an animal going to live, or is my ch- or is I, am I going to live, or my friend or my friend's child going to live, the humans win. But do we ever actually have to, especially in the West? Do we are we really faced with that sort of decision? Less so than in other parts of the country, but or in other parts of the world. But the um, the problem comes in. On the other side, it's one thing to choose not to eat meat. It's not. It's one thing to choose not to eat any animal products, but it's actually not possible in the industrialized world, and never has been, to live a life in which you use no animal products. 
um, the glues that hold our houses together that make plywood, the binders and stucco, the binders and cinder blocks, the stuff that makes up um, uh, binder and coagulant material for fiberglass and electronics, um, the, you know, the shoes you wear unless you're wearing full rubber shoes, even a lot of cloth fibers have animal products in them. Everything we have is made from animal products and animal byproducts. It's simply not possible to be an ethically consistent ethical vegan and live on the planet Earth. Part of this is going to be just the fact that, as you mentioned evolution, one of the, the phrases uh, that Darwin coined was uh, in reference to nature, red in tooth and claw. I mean, mm-hmm. just like you mentioned, it is impossible to live in an industrialized world without consuming some sort of animal products. Um, you know, not necessarily in your diet, but just like you mentioned, uh, glues, uh, plywood, just uh, all sorts of products that, that you would never think twice about. Of course, they do have animal products in it. The point is not to take those sorts of you know, unkind realities and use those as an excuse to throw up our hands in the air and not take action where we could be easily. Well, here comes the, here comes the big question then. Um, granted, at the moment, the American diet uses far more meat than it actually would need to produce as a byproduct for those other industrial applications. But for the sake of argument, let's say it's an even keel thing where we have to kill a certain number of cows, chickens, ducks, whatever, in order to be able to sustain an industrial economy. What then do you do with the surplus meat if no one's eating it? Because you can't, you you don't extract the same kind of, uh, of, of protein products from, those as you do from the bones and the cartilage, etc. It's a hypothetical question. I mean, I don't have the expertise to answer this question simply because I don't know what all is required to make all of these products. I would just suggest that being uh, the case that we live in the industrialized society is that if we honestly wanted to make the effort to reduce all animal suffering and all animal slaughter, that we would just begin seeking synthetic options for for those animal products i mean this is obviously very very far off um in time from now but but still i mean that just seems to be the obvious solution to that dilemma to me well and eventually it's going to happen and it's going to happen step by step because um as nanotech comes in um as better biotech comes in we're going to be able to grow more of these things cheaper and safer in a lab, then we are then we're going to be able to raise them on the farm. But the end point where we don't need um, where we don't need animal products anymore to sustain an industrial economy is at least a century out, maybe two. Well, and to to split the um, I guess the practicality question from the from the ideology, it 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 may be the case that it's impossible to live a a thoroughly vegan existence. However, does that does, does that diminish the um, the moral imperative of veganism? Just because you, just because you can't live thoroughly vegan, does that mean that veganism is wrong? As in terms of defending veganism, it's not that I'm going to just defend this black and white principle of if it has animal products in it, you know, no. If it doesn't, then whatever. Um, what I'm saying is that the principle behind my vegan diet is the is my striving to avoid the suffering of sentient beings whenever and however possible. So, I mean, that principle, I think we could really all agree on, and I, I don't see that there's any reason that any of us should not strive to, to make that happen in our personal lives. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'll, go as, I'll go this far with you down that road. Um, I, think, I think it's a slam-dunk moral case that... Um, Raising and slaughtering bonobos for food is, at the very least, dicey and probably outright immoral. We know too much about them. They're too much like us. Um, okay. When you get when you get down uh, get down to dolphins, yeah, probably dolphins too. But the further you go out and down the um, the evolutionary bush, the less that argument holds any force, as far as I'm concerned. Um, sure, sure. It, it does become difficult on where to draw the line. The important thing, I think, the big step for most people to get over is realizing that there is a line somewhere to be drawn that's just not 
you know, between humans and everything else. That's the speciesism that I believe Kevin was referring to earlier, mm-hmm. that we don't say, oh, just because this animal is a human being, it's of more value than this other animal that, that is not. Um, right, but, we, but, could, we could think of some clear instances where that would not be the case. Right, but but it, but if I understand the way you're intending, uh, the way you're meaning sentience properly, then I think that that's a, um, I I think that that's a canard. I don't think you can use that as the criteria. Um, if by sentience you're meaning a being that can feel pain and is aware that it's feeling pain and can remember pain, is that what you're meaning by that? More or less. Okay. See, I, I can't go that far down that road for you because that basically puts us at, above everything. Mm, it, that basically pushes the issue all the way down to the level of bacteria. Even some plants are going to get excluded on that, uh, on that criterion. And that's practicality has to be a part of the moral equation. Um, a, a moral ideal that is not practical, no matter how beautiful it seems in theory, is almost always monstrous when practiced out to the um, to the ends of the demands of the ethical paradigm. Marxism is a fabulous example of this. Marxism on paper is the most beautiful um, social system anyone could dream up. It's based on solidarity, brotherhood, communal sharing. Unfortunately, it ignores basic facts of human nature that mean um, that winds up with everywhere it's practiced, it becomes monstrous. Sometimes it becomes monstrous right off, sometimes it takes a little while. But Marxism is in fact a thoroughly immoral system because it doesn't take account of the practical realities of human nature and the world around us. Now I'm I'm actually kind of curious to see how that um, that that gradient that you mentioned, Dan, how that plays with with Kevin. Now, you're you're a Christian and you believe that, that fundamentally humans are uh, humans have some some quality, some sort of divine quality, some like a soul uh, that um, distinguishes them from all other living creatures. Would you um, would you feel the same sort of um, antipathy towards eating higher primates that that dan was um describing or would you be okay with the chimpanzee barbecue oh oh boy well first of all i blame the movie bambi for all of this you know (laughs) amen i mean you know ever since we you know started shooting these little sentient deers that could actually talk and name their children and skunks that could talk and i mean boy that movie has done more for veganism i think than anything (laughs) but i'm being funny it's uh which movie um, was that Bambi. Bambi. Oh, yeah. goodness. You know. uh, so, uh, anyway, that made more people throw their guns away and, and quit hunting, I think, than just about any movie ever has. So it, first of all, um, uh, for the Christian view, there's uh, uh, people, uh, human beings are, 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 are um, yes, of special status, um, God's highest creation and so on, uh, made in the image of God, um, having various attributes. Uh, yeah. As to what the image of God constitutes, what that means? Yeah, I w- in fact, I was going to say that. I was going to go on to say that the, that being um, um, uh, reason, uh, will, emotion, um, uh, the, 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 the power to make moral decisions, um, uh, thinking, um, uh, the ability to, to, to love at a deeper level, all those not material aspects, but those immaterial aspects. That's usually so, uh, what we think of. Go um, ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you initially, but just all the things you just mentioned are found in other animals in the animal kingdom. And it would seem to me that if humans are exclusively creating the image of God, then all those properties you just listed as constituting the image of God should be the exclusive property of humans. And yet, when we look out in the animal kingdom, we see that they're not. Yeah. And some, in fact, uh, the book of Genesis uses uh, a word nephish and, uh, uh, and therefore, uh, and, and applies it to other animals. So, nephish, uh, nephish animals, uh, uh, there are soulish animals that are of special relation to man. And so, uh, do certain animals, um, uh, what you might call the higher primates and so forth, have a, have a soulish aspect? Yes, yeah, I think so. There, there are these nephish animals. Uh, even described in Genesis. Uh, obviously, when we're talking about man uh, created in the image of God, there's going to be a special status there, uh, a level of, uh, of, of will, emotion, and moral power that um, is beyond 
Um, uh, there's no close second, you know, really, uh, to the extent that uh, those things that make God a sentient being, a living, intelligent, thinking being, were given to man, soulish aspects as well, and the ability for free will, the ability for love, uh, relationship, um, to the extent that they are, uh, that's, that's really uh, where, where we're going there. But, uh, you know, there are just some animals that we're not, we have a special affinity for. Um, uh, we, we wouldn't want to eat dolphins and chimpanzees. Well, and, no, you say that now. Yeah, 50 years ago, eating dolphins and chimpanzees was common, at least in some parts yeah, of the world. That's why, yeah, that's why I'm saying sensibilities, because uh, moral values, I think, you know, uh, uh, in their basic, when you pare them down, when you completely reduce them out, are, are, are there. I think they're bedrock. I think that they're objective and so forth, as we've talked about on this. But the sensibilities of people, ah, and the mores and things like that, yeah, that, that has a tendency to change. We would never eat dogs in America. Good grief, Peter would be backed on our, uh, you know, on our on our backyard, uh, you know, banging our door down. It's uh, but in Korea, you know that they they do that. Um, and so there are certain sensibilities, and I guess I'm talking about mostly the West, um, of of animals that are special relation to man that we hold a higher affinity and wouldn't consider uh, eating. Dennis Leary actually has a um, has a bit on this in in one of his albums where he says they <laughs> at at some point they went down the line of all the animals and all the all the cute ones got to um, stay off the truck and all the ugly ones had to get on and go to the slaughterhouse. <laughs> yeah, you know that that actually brings up one of the one of the other points that I think um, that I think ethical veganism had uh, fails on, and that is um, it's. It's historically naive in the sense that the vast majority of the animals that we breed and slaughter for food are not natural animals. They're animals we've created. They're, they exist in a symbiotic relationship with us. They wouldn't live in the first place if not for us. They wouldn't be able – many of them, uh, particularly a lot of species of cows, wouldn't be able to feed themselves. Um and without exception, all of the domesticated animals have a preferentially higher survival rate in the long term than do wild species because they're domesticated by us. If we stop if, – if we pull out of our part of that symbiotic relationship, in the short term, we may be reducing their suffering. But in the not very short term, in the medium term, we're guaranteeing extinction for a lot of the species we've domesticated because they no longer exist in wild forms. And they will not survive. All right, uh, this this argument it seems more. It's not so much a testimony to man's, uh, you know, charity that we've created these these species oh, that we're now. No, it, it's no, no, a no, testimony it's... to to our tyranny. I mean, the fact that oh, no, no, they no, 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 no. might might become extinct. You know, these animals are living miserable lives. They would probably prefer that. Uh, okay, first of all, it's. Animals were domesticated before the factory farm system, and it was, in almost every case, an arrangement of mutual advantage. Dogs and horses adopted us rather than vice versa. We adopted cows, but cows got a better deal out of it because we would go find food for them, and we would drive them to where the food was. The, the, a dispute with the factory farming system and the way that animals are crated and packed in tighter than is good for any being at all is a completely legitimate moral argument, and I'm way on your side on that one. But right, so what, I, what I would say is that, not but a that's, moral that's argument, not, though, is looking back historically to saying it was okay when we started using them in a symbiotic relationship, you know, 2,500 years ago, as if that somehow would justify any practice we have with them now. But there's still plenty of places that raise... Uh, that raise open-range cattle, that slaughter them not in an industrial slaughterhouse, but that slaughter them with more traditional methods. Um, the and In quite a number of cases, the keeping of pigs, for example, is a good one. The way they're kept today is far worse than the way they were kept 100 years ago. But the way they're slaughtered today is far more humane than it ever was. Yeah, better technology. Very, yeah. Yeah, better, better technology. technology. It's you know, we do we do not slit the throat of a live pig anymore. We understand now what kind of suffering that induces. So instead we explode their brains with an air gun. It's an instantaneous death. 
is a very complicated moral picture, and assuming that we're going to reduce animal suffering just by stopping to eat meat is is incorrect. And it oh, also I, I agree with that. It, it also ignores the fact that these that these species are species we created, and if and if we believe that we have a responsibility to attempt as much as possible to preserve biodiversity on the planet, we can't simply abandon our part of the symbiotic relationship with these species. We can do that. We can do our part a lot better than we do it now. No argument. But to abandon it is no different than um, plowing over, uh, than, 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 than paving over a pond where the last, uh, where the last species, where the last member of a species of frog lives. It's inducing it's inducing extinction by our uh, by our direct action. Yeah, I mean, obviously, any situation which includes just you know eliminating the usage of animals like that is is, is far off. And so, um, I'm I wouldn't suggest the abandonment of these species. For one thing, that would never happen, and for another, for another thing, it would have disastrous consequences, like you mentioned. Um, the point is, what are we doing now to reduce? the unnecessary use of these animals. You know, there's there's been some talk about how um, technology, um, improved technology, has um, improved a lot of these processes. I'm, I'm just wondering, um, if, if technology could be implemented, then this would obviously not happen uh, in the near future, but at, at some point, if technology could be implemented in such a way as to make um, um, – it's sort of an animal that was um, much more amenable to this process, and I'm I'm just sort of thinking of the um, of the animal in, in restaurant at the end of the universe. Uh, the, the 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 animal it was a cow of some sort that came up to the the table and volunteered itself to be slaughtered. Um, would that be a a more here? You have an animal that is. Literally, it its its only purpose and its only desire is to be eaten. Does that change the extremely odd creature, uh, an animal that is alive who only wants to die? Um, I think a better moral question would be if we could raise meat in a vat. Yeah, that's that's the other which we're working on now. That's the other direction I was going. Obviously, the uh, the 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 restaurant at the end of the universe. Um, the thing was is a little bit far fetched, but um, you know, what if what if we were able to raise, you know, if we were able to manipulate a, a cow in in some such a way that it was just basically a big bag of meat, and um, you know, in, in that case, we are not involved in the suffering of any sort of animal, and uh, if we could raise meat in the vat, um, then I have no moral problem with that. Now I, I've got to ask you a question, Richard. And this is this is a very sincere sure. one because this is another place where where Singer's arguments have always fallen down for me. Not on the suffering aspect, because like I said, we're on the same page as far as we can do quite a lot to improve the way animals are treated in the food industry. Um, but there's a basic fact of life, and that's this: every single organism in the world that has ever existed, that ever will exist is food for another organism, either indirectly, as in the case of plants rotting to refertilize the soil with other plants, or directly in the case of animals dying and being eaten by carrion eaters and by and digested by their own bacteria. When, when the world is set up that way, I don't understand how the eating of an animal can be any kind of moral question at all. I understand how slaughtering it inhumanely, I understand how abusing it, those things all legitimate moral issues, but the eating of an animal, how can that possibly be a moral issue in a world where everything is food? Well, I wouldn't say the issue comes with the eating of it. Um, I mean, I can think of moral dilemmas in which eating meat would be, uh, a, you know, moral high ground to, towards eating vegetables. Um, mm -hmm. And I can give you an example of that in a second. But the problem is not with eating of the meat. It's um, of specifically of how it's raised and perhaps what we could have done to prevent uh, unnecessary death and suffering. Okay, well, it's the, unnece the unnecessary suffering part, I'm with you there, but the unnecessary death part, I don't understand at all. Everything dies. Okay. And if, if, if that something is created as cows are, created solely for the purpose of providing raw materials for human life, and then it is raised on a range where it is most comfortable, and then it is slaughtered with a bullet through the brain, how is there possibly a moral issue with that? Right, Given the, that, the, the it will die. Majority, 
vast majority of these animals are not raised on, you know, ranches. No, no, no I understand that. I, I understand that. That's okay. I, I'm I'm going down to first principles, and then we okay. go up from there and see uh, going down to first principles so that we can then go up and evaluate the different ways that that reality in, intrudes. But yeah, the, and and I'm speaking specifically here of the meat on the hoof that I have slaughtered myself, um, raised on a ranch, walking in the open air, not fed on hormones, not fed on. Um, other cow byproducts just fed on grass and grain slaughtered with a bullet through the brain where given that the animals are created specifically for the purpose of serving human needs and that whatever I do it is going to die and become food for some organism anyway where is there possibly a moral issue in that equation from your perspective you you could ask the same question just Take out the issue, like take out uh, a cow, like it seems mm-hmm. like what you're using, and, and put in, say, a bonobo or a human. And we see where the issue comes in. It's like, how, how are we justified in, first of all, creating another living creature solely for our use? And then how, when we end this organism's life, before it has experienced the things that it naturally desires to experience, the happiness, if it leads this unfulfilled life, we, we, we're moral tyrants. We are creating a living being simply to subjugate it to us. You know, what gives us the right to do that? I, I, think, I think your argument is vacuous for two, uh, for, for two reasons here. Number one, a cow is not a person. A cow has very specific needs, wants, and desires. It wants to eat grass. It wants to ruminate. It wants to reproduce. Those are all things that happen on a farm, not necessarily on a factory farm, but on the kind of farm I'm describing that my friend owns. Um, Secondly, creating uh, fungal meat, uh, synthetic meats in a vat, we are still creating organisms for our own use. We have done this since, since we began cultivating animals and plants instead of hunting them wild. And, oh, you know, what this, was the this just is, there? what you're thinking about it, this just goes to... Oh, oh, oh bonobos and humans. I'm sorry, yeah. let, let me finish up okay. real here. Yeah, finish up. Go ahead. Killing a bonobo is, uh, is not the same as killing a human, but we can both agree that they are, uh, that killing a bonobo is not morally, um, mo- you know, morally clean shall we say. I think killing a human is worse, but killing a bonobo is not morally clean, and for a couple of very simple reasons. Number one, bonobos do have a concept of self-determination. That's a concept that cows don't have. Um, They also have recursive self-awareness and language, which means that they understand and comprehend the world they're in beyond their immediate sense memories and the conditioned reflexes that get laid down in their neural pathways. Cows are far dumber than that. They don't have the wetware to have the kind of awareness that you're ascribing to them. And I'm from a cattle ranching family. I've been around cows on and off my whole life. I know what I'm talking about. Okay, Richard, you respond to that, and then we'll hear from Kevin. All right, to answer the question, um, well, let's look. Okay, we were saying it's okay to do this to cows because they don't have self-determination. They don't have the wetware, as you put it, to you know, produce language or these other sort of mental capacities that we would describe to bonobos, and we say, okay, well, killing a bonobo is, isn't morally clean. Um, think about well, what would be the difference between killing all of these cows that you're referring to and say going into um, you know a certain uh, um, extension of, of a hospital where we have you know terminally ill patients who who are in you know uh, per- permanent comas you know um, or just mentally handicapped individuals that will never even develop mentally to the level of say a bonobo that they will be you know more or less mentally equal to to a cow what what separates these two? Would you, would you say that going and you know say blowing the brain out with an air gun of a mentally handicapped human is okay, or would well, it not it de- be? Well, it depends on the case. If you're talking about someone in a vegetative state like Terry Schiavo, yes, absolutely, it's okay. If if what's if all that's going on is meat, there's no moral issue with it beyond um, the interests of the family who haven't been able to let go yet. 
Um, in fact, if the if all that's going on is meat that is suffering, it's a morally superior thing to to euthanize the meat, as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Kevin, well, uh, it it again brings up what we can all agree on, and that is we want to have humane, good systems. Um, uh, we want to, uh, uh, I think, go back and and keep an eye on on regulation and uh, um, of how. Uh, animals are treated, how uh, the processing is done. It's for health issues as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we go to the grocery store now to get our meat. We don't go to the backyard with an axe like my grandmother did. And so we're we're more removed from the process to the extent that now we only watch Disney movies about animals and see them on Animal Channel and uh, pet them and, and love, love on them. So our sensibilities uh, are really affected by... Uh, some of uh, some of the stuff that, that 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 goes on, or that we even perceive, you know, is going on, and 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 so on. It's 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 another thing to think about. Is I don't think we understand or or even know um, uh, animal anticipation of of, of death. They uh, they don't die like we do. I'm not saying that they don't suffer, and I'm not being naive. I'm just saying that um, there's a there there seems to be. Uh, even from a strictly biological level, uh, 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 there certainly is a spiritual level going on, I would argue. But also from a biological level, uh, there's, there's this instinctual reaction to suffering. Um, there's this, uh, uh, there's a, this instinctual, uh, uh, really non-awareness of, of what's going on when they die uh, and so on that, um, that, that humans have, that animals uh, don't. Uh, and so uh, some of the things that bother our sensibilities now are exactly what we talked about at the beginning of the show, and that is we're a little removed from the process here. If, if, I, could, if I could pick up with the rest of my answer to uh, Richard's question, though, because I only got through the Terry Chavos of the, of the uh, vegetative ward. Okay, go ahead. Um, there, are other, um, there are other types of coma and vegetative states um, that are caused by dopamine problems that are potentially curable where the subject is at least partially aware of what's going on around him and was once a fully functional human being and may again be a fully functional human being. That's absolutely not okay as far as I'm concerned. You're um, intervening in another person's self-determined life that's on hiatus at the moment, but it's not over. The difficulty, com- the moral difficulty, comes in when you're talking about things like uh, acephalopathy, uh, where someone is born with only the pain centers and uh, the motor sk- uh, the motor centers of the brain without a higher brain. Um, that's that's a question that's got a couple of different aspects to it. I'm very in favor of abortion of such a of of such a human before if detected before birth. I'm very opposed to the euthanization of such a person after birth. And I'm not opposed to the euthanization after birth because I think they can tell. I think it's actually kinder to do that and I say this having had a cousin who is acephalopathic and seen what kind of terrible pain she was in her whole life. I think it's more humane to do that. However, I don't think it's necessarily more ethical. And the reason is, once you push that line of terminability out, you push the question of who's a real person into the domain of the political. And that's a domain that we can't, that, that's a, a sort of power that we cannot allow the government or our neighbors to have over us because. It's quite possible that any one of us will get in an auto accident and wind up in that situation um, or that we will have a child who winds up in that situation. And so for the sake of our own self-interest, I think we have to draw the moral line much farther back where humans are concerned than we would where um, animals are concerned. It's interesting that even in cases of cannibalism where people have survived, as I recall the Parker incident in Colorado, um, Mm -hmm. He was um, either convicted or almost convicted because he was a little too fat. Uh, he ate a little too much uh, human meat, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Now they they were. Uh, it, it's been con- uh, you know considered unethical in so many cultures, even uh, not unethical to survive and, and therefore to to to, to eat your uh, your fellow sojourners. But 
uh, certainly not to feast or dine or have a banquet on them. And um, um, uh, you were fiercely looked down on if you uh, uh, even were in a situation like that where you just, uh, you know, filled up. And, Enjoyed um, it. You know, and, and, and it's because of that social pressure. You, you don't you don't want to live next to someone who might look at you and think, ah, barbecue. Yeah, looks over at you and sees a roast turkey. Yeah, and so you're not gonna you're you're not gonna eat Terry Schiavo, uh, even if she said, "Look, man, if I ever go into a vegetative state, I'm putting it in my will. I want you guys to barbecue, put plenty of Tabasco on me, and and eat up." Mm-hmm. Well, no, you know. So, um, uh, you know, uh, we could discuss the morality of it and so forth, but uh, um, we do have a uh, uh, just a, 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 an intuitive awareness of some boundaries here. I'm with Richard on, on, on fighting for him. Richard says, you know, let's let's clarify him and uh, and, and try to get him get him down. And that's that's sort of the um, ultimately that's the concept that we're we're, we're dancing around. And it's it's hard to pin down because we all we all want to pin it down differently. But this idea of this line, there's this line that needs to be drawn beyond which you do not kill something. It's this is kind of a weird Absolutely. this is kind of a weird um, moral argument in, in that um, like for for example with murder. You know, murder is a, you know, that's a clear, you know, do not do this type of thing. But with with eating. Right. But but defining murder is another matter. Well, OK. Defi- defining murder may be a little bit different. But this is um, this is very, um, I guess, am- ambiguous. Um, and, and like you're talking about the gradient of, you know, uh, human like uh, anthropomorphized, et cetera. Um, where do we where do we stick that line? Do we. Um, do we push it um, as far down the, uh, the the animal kingdom as as we possibly can, um, like like Richard would like us to do, or um, do we move it up just you know just into our, our our closest relatives? And another related issue comes with um, with the pets we keep or the um, the species we preserve in zoos that have no other home. Most of the mo- most of the most endangered species in the world are carnivores, and they're endangered because we're more effective carnivores than they are. Um, I have two pet snakes. Now, there's absolutely no way I'm going to feed them on soy snake food, even though they're, I live near Berkeley, and there are people who do that. They also have snakes that live an incredibly short life. Um, you know, I, I will. You know, when I had my Burmese pythons, I threw rabbits at them every two weeks. When I have a boa constrictor and a small python now, I throw rats at them every two weeks. That's what they eat. That's what they're designed for. And I commit no moral atrocity by giving them food to keep them alive. Yeah, I I, I wouldn't argue that you do. Cool. <laughs> um, well, I I would like to go back. Um, just. In talking about, you know, if, if we're slaughtering cows humanely on, you know, a farm where they've been raised, um, you know, r- relatively painlessly, I'd just like to point out that that sort of practice, even if it were going on on a small scale, as we've all agreed, this is not what's happening presently, but it's also the case that it's not happening presently because we would not be able to meet our supply, uh, we would not be able to supply the meat that the industrialized world demands just uh, to provide meat in the quantities that we currently eat it we wouldn't be able to raise enough meat on farms like that and that demand is what has given rise to these things like like factory farms which is causing all of the atrocities that uh, we all um, as far as I can tell are in agreement on that you know we uh, should not be you know happily endorsing well, we, perhaps we ought to get into some of the specific practices because some, some elements of factory farming, I think, are, like I said earlier, are significant advances over what used to happen. Um, and some of them okay. are significant step backs. Um, for example, I think the crating of um, animals that have not been designed to be crated is um, atrocious. Sure. And it's also not necessary. It just happens to be more cost effective. And so the regulations about it are not well enforced. Um, yeah. But I absolutely agree that's atrocious. Slaughtering um, chickens by electrocution first and then beheading is far more humane than just cutting their heads off. Um, Ditto with blowing a cow's brains out with an air gun as opposed to stabbing it through the heart or blowing a pig's brains out with an air gun as opposed to sticking it and bleeding it to death. 
right, let, let me also just point out that uh, even if these technologies are more advanced, there are still failures. There are still times where the there chickens will always don't die be from failures. electrocution. Mm-hmm. And there the, are the, the chickens don't die from the electrocution. Guns. They are numbed from the electrocution. And uh, air guns also misfire and just cause immense you know, suffering before the eventual death. Uh, so, yes, but but demand demanding um, demanding perfection out of any industrial process or out of any human process is not a legitimate ground from which to proceed on a moral argument. We don't no. demand perfection of our doctors. We don't per- demand perfection of our automakers. We don't demand perfection of the people that pack our green beans in cans. We can't demand perfection because if we did, human society would grind to a halt. What we need, what we have to do, is figure out where the absolute minimum reasonable failure rate is and set the standard there you know we are uh, we're very squeamish then again i'll go back to that we're just very squeamish as a uh as a society about these things <clears throat> you know the <clears throat> the average woman um american woman she's just she would freak dan if you were if she were to go to your house and watch that feeding process of your, your, <laughs> Sean, your, i bet mm-hmm. she no, would i look, bet it happened yeah, I mean, oh my gosh, and and it, it's uh, not a sexist thing too. Some some men, some women find it fascinating; well, others find it horrifying. Exactly. I, I'm not trying to be uh, sexist or even stereotype generalize. It's just that I do notice a, a sensitivity in today's women toward that, and uh, uh, and all the women that I know, and uh, and and certainly uh, that would that would go for all of us, even me. Uh, and my point I'm trying to make is even the other day I, I was hiking and uh, I came across a, a, this ugly old bug and I, I'm, um, I'm not sure. I used to know what kind of bug it was. I, I forgot the name of this this ugly old bug that I had there. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this bug and not five feet from me is a big old fire ant bed. And I could have chunked that bug in that fire ant and watched an amazing feat of nature as they would just take that thing apart Strip in a matter down, of minutes. Yeah. yeah, but you know what? Mm-hmm. I I didn't do it. Um, um, I'm a um, I'm a manly man from East Texas, but I'm I'm just not going to uh, take that bug and mm-hmm. chunk it to the fire ants. Um, well, yeah, that's it, it's for, a difference the, between for the fun of it, for the fun, yeah, for the sheer pleasure of seeing something go out. Part. Yeah, yeah, you know, and um, it smacks, it smacks sadism. It, it yeah. smacks of it. Uh, I wouldn't though, have done that either. But I tell you what, I would have done is if I had a young child with me, I would have done it. Hmm. Because um, a young child who doesn't know how the world works needs to learn. That's legitimate educational um, enterprise. But if I was on my own or with an adult, I absolutely wouldn't do it because that would just be sadistic. You know, as we're as we're finishing up here, let's let's revisit um, the question that or the, the the situation that I brought up at the very beginning. Peter Singer talking with Richard Dawkins, and um, the admission by Richard Dawkins that um, it was entirely it's entirely possible that a couple hundred years in the future uh, we might regard eating meat or at least the way we eat meat today as akin to to slavery. And we've been talking a lot about um, the technological advances that have occurred in animal husbandry, etc. And these advances will probably continue to occur and might even make um, eating meat uh, in the future a completely non-moral issue because of um, a complete separation of that. So I'll, I'll ask uh, all you guys, um, do you think that is a like Richard Dawkins thinks. Do you think that's a possibility that we'll we'll look back and and if if technology is able to take us to that point that we will consider um, what what people here have done today uh, and, and have been doing as far as um, the, the the meat eating process and the butchering process and all that. Do you think that will be looked at in the same way we look at slavery? I would definitely say it's a possibility. Not in the same. I don't think that we should regard eating meat as um, you know, as the same type of moral crime as, as slavery, because obviously I do believe that there is greater value to a regular human life than there are to, like, uh, going back to the example of a regular life of, of, a, of a farm cow. But um, in the same way that we, at least for me personally, I just naturally regard slavery as something morally reprehensible, I think future generations could also just as naturally regard uh, the slaughtering of animals and eating them as also naturally morally reprehensible. 
And um, I think it's also interesting that uh, when the movement for women's rights was initially started um, in the very late uh, 1700s, um, well, not necessarily the starting of the movement, but rather at the um, in the late 1700s is when this occurred, that there was uh, a book written in defense of women's rights, and there was uh, a prominent philosopher from Cambridge who actually responded to this book by uh, sort of mocking it and turning it into a case for animal rights, using the same case, using the same arguments for women's rights that were, that were initially being used. He just applied the same arguments and said, "Look, if we, you know, take this reasoning seriously, we need to give animals rights too." Hmm. And, and here we are, you know, 200 years later, and no one thinks twice about, you know, the equality of women. And yet, you know, this issue of animal rights is, is still going around. So I would like to point out that it is definitely a possibility that within 200 more years, uh, we could definitely be at the place where Dawkins speculated we might. Hmm. That would be, uh, in many ways, consistent with a Christian view in that uh, we are to subdue the earth, we are to take dominion over the earth, and we are to care for the earth. Uh, the creation mandate, uh, Book of Genesis, and so on, uh, you know, and throughout, uh, all the religions of the world have, uh, for the most part, uh, taken this high view of... Uh, caring for nature and uh, that we get off track when we don't um, and so on. So if we got to the point in our development where we could um, uh, have alternatives, um, uh, meet in a vat, uh, some things like that, well, well, heck yeah, you know. Um, anything to make moral progress, and that goes beyond, uh, I'm saying the word again, it goes beyond mere sensibilities and mores, but... Uh, um, anything that we can do to make the world a better place and be more harmonious with nature, man, let's, let's do it. And we ain't there. Um, and, um, we, we've got a lot of work to do. Dan, you want to close us out? Yeah, I think that, um, I think Dawkins is half right, but I think he's, uh, I think it's not, it won't be regarded as it'll be, reg as uh, slaveholding is regarded, but rather I think it's going to be regarded as the keeping of servants is regarded, and for much the same reason. Um, back in the late 19th century, every middle class household had three or four servants. You had to, in order to maintain the house, you had uh, a butler who ran the household, you had a maid and a cook, and uh, perhaps a valet. And in order for a middle-class lifestyle to exist, you had to have that kind of staff. Now we look on anyone who's got that kind of staff as being ridiculously self-important, very wasteful, and probably more than a little bit disgusting. Um, though we still make some allowances for presidents and the ultra-rich because the, there's a cachet that goes with that. But the reason that we now look on people who keep servants with an air of bemusement or disdain is because we have things like dishwashers and laundry machines and, um, and uh, computers, and we don't need to keep the kind of household staff just to run the household that we used to. Now one person – with uh, now one person can run a household. The, sch the, the, the schedule is a little bit hectic and harried because it's a little more than a full-time job even with the labor-saving labor conveniences. But it is possible now for one person to run a household. Didn't used to be possible. Yeah, I can't help but add to that. I can't help but add to that. Uh, and, and hold your thought because uh, I want you to finish your thought. It's, it's, that, um, 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 it's the same with slavery. We view slavery... Now, the way people in the future are going to look at how stupid we have been with credit cards. We've been enslaved <laughs> to plastic. In fact, it's happening right now. The tide is changing. Credit cards are a, have, have turned out to be a horrible idea. And, um, uh, you know, well, slavery's in the Bible and all that. We could do a whole show on that about uh, the economic systems, the reality of slavery, uh, how slaves will be treated, the difference between bond servants and also those of enforced slavery, and how it was an ideal, and hopefully moral progress is going to eradicate that, um, and that's exactly what we, we want to we see, and that's what happened here in America and so forth. Yeah, but the reason I'm making the analogy to servants instead of slaves is that slaves um, in the United States and in Britain were freed long before the economic realities would have made keeping slaves uneconomical. Uh, they were freed about 80 years before that point. 
Yeah, and, you know, Where, and that's cool. whereas whereas servants oh. fell out of use because of economic and technological advance. The freeing of slaves was a moral issue. The the freeing of servants is not. The freeing of servants has been a gradual progression of a technological and economic reality that simply made the idea passe. And I think what we're going to see with um, uh, at, at, ver at the very least with table meats and perhaps farther in the future with animal byproducts that we use um, in industrial products is a gradual replacement of one by another as it becomes less and less economical to keep the animals and more and more economical to grow the proteins. So I don't think it's going to be looked back on like the same kind of moral issue that slavery was, but I think it's going to be looked back on with the kind of bemusement and, and head shaking that we look on people now who keep servants. Well, all right, gentlemen, this was another fascinating discussion, of course, and uh, this time it, it, it seems that the food for thought can be taken somewhat literally. Um, at least uh, I would say this is the kind of conversation that I truly relish. Um, all right, that's for the bad jokes. I've been sitting on that one for a while. But seriously, thanks to uh, Richard for joining us here tonight. It was great to have you on. Hey, thank you for inviting me. And thanks to the regular crew, of course. Bon appetit. And, uh, and we'll see you next time on Apologia. Let me just pop in this a -trick.